because it typically gives us a six to 18 months, sometimes six to 24 month heads up on when recession is going to happen. And it's very reliable. It's literally predictable 100% of the time. And so I'm watching that carefully. It's getting close to inverting, but it's not there yet. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors. Welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I'm sitting down with Jeremy Roll. Now, Jeremy has been passively investing since 2002 and has been a full-time passive investor since 2007. He's invested in more than 100 opportunities across more than a billion dollars of real estate and business assets. He's also founder of the Roll Investment Group, where he manages a group of over 1,500 passive investors. Jeremy, we're so excited to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. Really hope this is helpful for your listeners. So, absolutely. And so, with your experience, I mean, it definitely will be. There's a lot of people who are aspiring to do what you do and become passive in some capacity, whether it's for a little bit of their income or like you and eventually replace their income. So, tell us about that. Tell us about that journey from 2002 to 2007, a relatively quick time period to get completely passive. So, tell us about that journey. Yeah, you know what? You are right. It is a quick time period. I'm really glad you stressed that because this doesn't happen overnight. And if you're trying to be careful, it takes many, many years. So what happened with me is that back after the dot-com crash, for those of you who remember that, when the stock market crashed, I was working in the corporate world. I was actually working for Disney headquarters in LA at the time. And I was like sick and tired of the volatility and the lack of predictability. I'm a very low-risk, slow-and-steady guy. And to watch the market go up and down 30% in the year, I was just looking at that going, that's not a very good retirement strategy for myself for like the next 40 years. Mm -hmm. So I was really looking for more predictability more than anything. And so I started to look at different ways to invest, came across real estate, came across the concept of more passive cash flow. And that's what I started to invest in in 2002 was a passive cash flow type opportunities. Um, I invested in syndications that were more commercial real estate and larger projects, larger multifamily, et cetera. That's just how I started. And what happened with me is that my intention was not to actually get out of the corporate world of cash flow. I was intending on rotating my stocks and bonds into more predictable cash flow and having my paycheck and my cash flow and building up the cash flow for my retirement, but continuing on in the corporate world. Well, fast forward to 2007, I was working at Toyota headquarters here in LA, and I had a last strong moment with the new manager who I just kind of moved into a new division, got promoted, and I was having all kinds of challenges. I had enough cash flow built up to live off of at that point, but it wasn't like I had this great plan to actually get out of the corporate world. I just said, you know what? I have enough cash flow built up to live off of. I was like my last strong moment of the corporate world, and I decided to take a risk and leave. And that's how I ended up out of the corporate world. Wow. That's so incredible because whether you continued on in the corporate world or not, and a lot of people do, a lot of people, even our investors, we give them distributions that I know they can live a pretty good life just on that. It's the peace of mind of knowing like, Hey, if something happened, if like you said, I just want out right now, just walking and knowing I'm taken care of if something goes wrong, or if I choose to walk away from this. I mean, that's such a big part of it as well. Cause like you said, with your stocks, it may be not even be that they were doing poor. It's just the peace of mind that you're after. I can't have those big fluctuations and everything like that. Exactly. Yes. Yes. But I would say that when I left, one of the keys for myself, just being a low risk guy, is that I had what I call like a two to one coverage ratio of cash flow to expenses. And that was back then, I had no kids. I was just married. Now I have kids. I live in LA and it's very expensive. But back then, that two to one coverage ratio was absolutely key because, frankly, I was anticipating some type of recession at some point. 
And in case some of those cash flow streams stops, you want to have some type of cushion. I'm not a financial advisor or anything, so I'm not making any recommendations in general. But just from my perspective as an investor, I would not recommend that people do just a strict one-to-one cash flow coverage and get out. I'd recommend trying to get over that in case some of the cash flow streams happen to like stop or become less. Absolutely. And so tell us about the beginning. So it sounds like at first it was real estate or was it all real estate or did you mix things up or tell us about that portfolio, what it was in the beginning and what it sure. looked like now? Yeah. So in the first few years, it was 100% real estate. It was a combination back then of office, industrial and retail. And that was not a coincidence. I actually had lifelong friends in my family who've been actually doing these types of deals for a couple of decades already. And I started with them to really learn. And it was a very unusual. I was very lucky because I was able to learn a ton our families have been friends for like decades. And then what happened is in 2005, I actually got really concerned. I started to get on the sidelines. So that slowed me down. And I actually pivoted and did some equipment leasing and some non-real estate stuff that was very lucrative. And we get into more detail if you want, but it's a friend of mine who's growing an IT company. And then 2007, 2008 came. 2008 started and there started to be some interesting deals. I actually started to kind of dip my toe back in. I went into a multifamily student housing deal at that point. And then from 2009 and there on, once I got comfortable that we were end of cycle and was getting better deals, I started to just look at a much wider set of stuff. So then I added on mobile home parks, eventually self-storage, single family flips, hard money lending on single family. Sprinkled through, I mean, this is 1% of what I do. I did some startups in the 2000s. I've done some startups this decade as well, or this past decade. I'm not looking for them. It's when I have to make a bet on somebody and I kind of like the business model well enough. So I maybe have like 10, it's not that many. For me, it's all about predictable cash flow. So now I'm in all so many things. I mean, like I've been in ATMs actually since 2008, probably my single best consistent, best performing thing I've ever been in. I mean, I'm in debt related stuff now. I'm in Bitcoin mining from last year, different types of apartments like low income housing tax credit, tax abated apartment deals most recently in the past couple of years. But I will say that I've been on the sidelines mostly since the end of 2016, kind of like I went on the sidelines 2005. I've kind of only done unique opportunities or a few different buckets of types of investments in the past couple of years after the pandemic, but especially before then, I was just being ultra careful because of cycle timing and high prices. So I'm actually looking forward to just like in 2008 and nine, where I can wait for a full cycle reset, hopefully it will occur. And then I'll be able to jump back in on a much broader spectrum. I'm in mobile home parks, RV parks. I mean, I can go on and on about this. Yeah, you've got it all. Even has startups, even though you said it's a small portion of it, but that seems like the total opposite or the other side of the spectrum. It's actually a similar principle to what I do with my passive investing, which is in the decades of the 2000s, I invested in a bunch of startups with really cool ideas. I didn't know the team very well. And most of them went to zero. Not all of them, but most of them went to zero. And what I did is I completely pivoted in 2010 decade and said, if you have a startup to send me, I don't want to see it because I don't want to make a bet on a team that I don't know, because that's actually where I went wrong. And that's what I learned from. Like if someone I knew, I just had to make a bet on because they were so successful in the past. And I kind of like the business idea well enough. Well, that's when I went ahead and deployed. And I've been extremely fortunate to be some amazing startups. And frankly, startups to me are even more fun than cash flow. But there's also grueling in many ways. It could take many years to get liquidity. They can go to zero. So they're interesting business models and stuff. And we could talk more about it if you want. My single worst miss ever was an opportunity that you probably heard of called GoodRx. Let me just say that I missed the opportunity to probably end up with about a 1,500 times return. So if you invested $25,000 in 2013 that I passed on in the seed round, because I need the founder, you would have about $37 million today. It's 2020, right? I'm sure you passed on a lot of things that you're glad you passed on. I love picking people's brains about market cycles. I was in single family sales before and in single family investments close to eight or nine years ago. And at that point, 
everybody was saying, oh, this is the top. I'm like, I'm not buying a home right now. This is the top. And then the next year was the same thing. And then the next year was the same thing. And so my journey now over the past close to 10 years has been the bubble. The whole time we've been in the bubble. I understand you're pulling back on some real estate investments. So some people might think, well, why would you be on the show talking about real estate investment? But this is a good perspective to have. How do you see this market cycle? Why do you think it's been going on for so long? And of course, you're not making predictions and you're not making recommendations. It's all just your personal thought. But how do you see the cycle going? And how do you see real estate going in the next couple of years? I'm well known to be very conservative. So let's just start with that. And just everybody needs to take me with a grain of salt. Okay. But at the same time, what I've seen happen in the last few years is that based on the inverted yield curve and what that tells us as to when there's going to be a recession, we probably start to enter a recession in February, March, if there would not have been a pandemic. And I had been waiting for that. It was completely on track. And I was expecting a cycle reset in terms of asset price adjustment. What happened is that the government came in within four to six weeks, printed a gazillion dollars, which everybody is familiar with now, caused all this inflation. But at the same time, they also inflated asset prices. And this is my one person's opinion because they called a recession in 2020 with the shortest recession ever. I don't consider it a recession. That was like a half recession that we haven't really had yet because they just printed all this money. If you take my view that we haven't had a cycle reset yet, because asset prices never adjusted like they normally do, then, by the way, I should also preface that in 2020, if we would have had that recession, it would have been the longest non-recessionary period in US history. So we were already broken a record in the length of the recovery since 2009. So they kicked the can even further than we're now we're way past record territory. So what I think is going to happen here is that 2021 was the year of tailwinds, where we had the wind at our back, we had a gazillion dollars money printed. We had quantitative easing. We had asset prices going up, people making a boatload of money on crypto and other items. This year, 2022, in my opinion, is a year of the headwinds when you have the exact opposite. You have the government raising interest rates. Most likely, that's what they're saying they're going to do. They're winding down quantitative easing and possibly going into quantitative tightening. You have eviction moratoriums, foreclosure, fairbairns, pandemic emergency assistance, all gone now. So what happened in 2021 is that all this money, not only inflated asset prices, but from a consumer perspective, it pulled all this years of demand forward because they were giving all this money to spend, but now it's gone and they're back to the regular savings rate. And now things are starting to slow down again. So if you take a look at what happens when the government tends to increase interest rates, historically, once there's three or more increases, it almost always leads to a recession. Eight out of the 11 of the times they did this over the past century, it led to a recession. The only time there wasn't a recession is the two world wars in 1929. So probability is they're going to raise three times or more. We're going to end up in a recession. And also probability is that once they start to raise interest rates, that decreases asset prices because it increases the cost to actually buy something and to service it. So based on probabilities, we should have a situation where there will be an asset price adjustment coming up sometime in the next year or two. I'm keeping a very close eye and possibly sooner, keeping a really close eye on the inverted yield curve because it typically gives us a six to 18 months, sometimes six to 24 month heads up on when recession is going to happen. And it's very reliable. It's literally predictable 100% of the time. And so I'm watching that carefully. It's getting close to inverting, but it's not there yet. Tell us a little bit about that because a lot of listeners may not understand what that is. And you're saying, hey, rely heavily on the inverted yield curve. Yes. I can see a lot of listeners right now like, oh, I got to Google that. <laughs> what does that yeah. mean? If you don't know what that is, I strongly recommend you Google it because if you actually look and research it, you will find that you will get a six to 18 months, sometimes six to 24 month heads up on when we're actually going to have a recession 100% of the time. So what you want to do is 
for example, go on to CNBC, which is where I track it every day, as an example, click on bonds on the top, it will then show you a headline, it will say like 10 year treasury is 1.96, whatever today, click on that headline. And when you go into that page, it will show you a list of all the treasury bonds and notes by term. So you'll see three month, one year, two year, 10 year, 30 year, I think is what they show. I think they also show the five year. And what you'll notice is that they all have a different yield, a percentage interest rate. So what I'm referring to with the inverted yield curve based on predicting the recession is you have to take a look at the two year and the 10 year. And what you're going to find is that almost always the two year is lower than the 10 year. There's a premium for locking in your money for a longer term, right? You're going to have a higher interest rate. And there's many other factors associated with that. What happens when it inverts is that the two year is actually a higher interest rate than the 10 year. And that's because people are scared in the short term. Let's just say that if it's a 50 basis point spread, one is 1.5, the other one's two, and there's 50 basis points or 0.5%. What you're looking for is that once it inverts and the two-year is higher than the 10-year, you have an inverted yield curve. And it, the whole yield curve is across the whole thing, but you have an inverted two and 10. And that's what tells you very reliably if we're going to have a recession. That's when the clock starts ticking. So check that out. You had said indicator of price adjustments for assets is interest rates, right? Of course, if interest rates are low, we can afford to buy more. Prices will go up. And now as interest rates increase, which they've already increased once so far this year, it's February right now. And I believe they actually increase again tomorrow. My lender was saying, hey, we're looking to lock down a few things now. It was urgent for us to get it done today because tomorrow he was saying he felt there was another rise. Opinions are that it's going to raise three times this year, three times next year. Now, I want to pick your brain on something that I heard from another investor, which was if interest rates rise, yes, the asset price decreases, but you as the investor, your returns are not as impacted because, okay, yes, you're paying lower for the asset, but you're paying higher for the rate. It switches now, right? We're paying more for the asset, but much lower on the rate. Is it an even trade-off in your experience or is one more valuable than the other or what's your experience been? Yeah, that's a great question. And look, there's a lot of different ways to look at it. So I'll just tell you as a really low risk guy, let me ask you just a very basic question. Let's put the interest rate aside. Mm-hmm. Would you rather buy a Porsche for $100,000 or $50,000? 50 grand. So I'm waiting for the Porsche to become 50,000. That's 100,000 today. And by the way, I'm not saying prices are going to go down by half, but it's sure, really sure. that simple the way I look at it. I would rather wait until asset prices are lower because I think if you buy things at lower prices, you have less risk in certain ways. So the total cost of everything that's mentioned in that past example may be true. But then when you have to go resell the asset down the line, you've got less equity in it. You have all these other factors that reduce the risk because you bought it at a better basis. You have the potential for better cash flow. By the way, it depends on what type of loan you're getting. To be totally honest with you, the loan type, the term, all things being equal, I'd rather buy the Porsche at 50,000 instead of 100,000. It's really that simple. My mindset is generally the same, but I definitely see the other school of thought is, hey, we use leverage in this business. So look at what the returns are. But I want to brush on something that you had mentioned in the past. So you've been in this for a long, long time. You've been investing in real estate and syndications, big properties, small properties, hard money, all these things. And I know you are rather bearish right now on real estate. How have you seen these deals change over the years? And are you even looking at real estate right now? Or have you not bought any real estate in the past couple of years because of just returns? Are you looking for returns that just maybe aren't that common in today's market? Or how have you seen returns change recently? Yeah. So how far back do you want me to go? From when you were hard charging on real estate versus when you started to pull it back? Like when was the moment that you said, okay, now I think I'm going to lay off of the gas of this asset class? 
Okay, so basically I went pretty hard from 09 to 16. Now, some assets, the way that I work is that I watch every single asset class I'm open to. And when one gets too expensive, I just stop doing that, but I keep doing the others. Because for example, apartments were very popular in 09 to 13 when people were getting foreclosed, there was very obvious demand coming down the road for it. Mm -hmm. So apartments had cap rate compression more quickly than self-storage or mobile home parks as an example. Sure. I'll go through an entire cycle. And then once everything gets too expensive as far as cap rate, then I'll release it on the sidelines except for a unique situation. So that happened to me at the end of 2016. So as of 2017, it's really only being unique situations I've considered. Now, you asked me if I'm investing in real estate today. I am always open to investing in real estate, but it has to be a unique situation. So let me give you an example. I invested in, I don't know the exact number, but call it five to seven apartment opportunities last year. Now, you would probably say, that's crazy. Cap rates are very low in most cases. I'm guessing that you probably wouldn't do that based on what you've told me. doesn't make sense. Well, I invested in mostly tax abated opportunities. And when you start putting a tax abatement angle on them, it changes the entire equation and makes it a very unique situation. Very hard to find those deals. We can get into a specific example if you want, but the point is I'm still open to unique situations and unique possibilities, but what I've had to do more of, especially since the pandemic started and the stuff really got supercharged as far as asset prices, I've had to pivot and look at a lot of non-real estate stuff or shorter term stuff or stuff that I thought makes sense. So I'm actually investing across three different types of buckets. If you want, I can get into the specifics right now, doing that until things go back to like a better time to invest, I think. So what kind of buckets are you talking about? So bucket number we already covered, just unique opportunities that just have either unique pricing or some aspect that will get me over the hurdle of not doing a market rate deal right now. Number two is short term. So I love short term at the moment and or stuff that's paying back very quickly in terms of return of capital, because my theory is that I want to be able to get access to my capital quickly because if asset prices do adjust, I want to go back into the stuff that I really like to do, which is the real estate stuff. So a hard money is a great example, lending on first position loans for flippers. Last year, 2021 was a fantastic risk reward scenario for investors when there was such a shortage of supply and increased demand for housing. You knew that prices were going to go up and that's a great situation to be in when you're lending on them. I'm going to do a lot more of that again this year because I think we're going to be in not as good a position as last year, but still a safe position, I think. But I'm also going to make money back in six to 12 months, right? And then I can reassess. So that's another example. There's some stuff that's paying back very quickly. Sometimes you get a payback in 12 to 18 months in other types of things I'm doing where I'm taking a lot of risk off the table really quickly. And I also get to redeploy it really quickly. So that's kind of bucket two. Bucket three is are you going to depreciate to zero anyway, unlike real estate? And so I don't care if prices go down because I'm already expecting the price to go down. A really easy example. ATMs. Is, yeah, ATMs. It's computers. It's a screen, a bill feeder, a keyboard, and a case. It's going to zero. It's going to like 5% residual in seven years, most likely. I'm just approximating. So we're losing 95% of the value. I don't care if it's worth accelerates in the depreciation amount. What I care about is predictability of the cash flow because that's what I look for. And if I'm convinced that even if we have a downturn that the cash flow is going to continue from a recessionary perspective, I'll continue to invest in it. So that's what I've been doing. I don't have to worry about the asset price depreciating. Talk to a lot of alternative investors and ATMs kind of seems to be the one that sticks out as the biggest one that depreciates and it's more of that cash flow upfront play and then it tapers yeah. off at the end. So another really easy example is Bitcoin. I don't invest directly in Bitcoin. It's not the right thing for me. It doesn't cash flow. And also it's very volatile. And the predictability is like literally impossible to predict. Nightmare. <laughs> but I have invested in a Bitcoin mining fund through someone I know where you then own the equipment that's mining the coins and the break-even mining price is $6,000 a coin. So that equipment is depreciating to zero. You actually get to depreciate 80 to 90% of it in year one. 
I'm looking for the predictability of the cash flow of mining the coins. And so we can get into a lot more detail of it as well, but that is an exact similar scenario with computer equipment, the projected payback period if included depreciation is about a year. And so you're getting the money back really quickly, taking a lot of risk off the table. And I don't care whether the equipment depreciates. Because a lot of people really do one asset class. They do it really well. They find the operators they like, and then that's their portfolio. For a lot of people, real estate seems to be that. But you have those buckets, I think, is a really great idea because they sort of offset each other, put you in this position where you can really be full-time. And tough to say you're a full-time passive investor because it sounds like a lot of work. You're staying on top of these things and trends and things like that. For people out there who are looking to make that transition, they want to be that full-time or they want to dedicate more time to it. First of all, yes, education is always important. Everybody comes on the show and says, well, first step is education. Educating is an ongoing process. While people are educating, what would you say is the first step that really puts you in a position where you can now say, okay, this is a viable thing to do. What should that beginner investor start doing while they're learning? Because that's never going to stop. Is it meeting sponsors? Is it learning about other asset classes? What's an actionable item that they can and should do to set their portfolio for success? Yeah. Okay. So there's two things I would recommend. So the first thing I'll just take a step back and say, a lot of people that I talk to who are brand new will say, okay, I want to deploy X amount of dollars in the next five years and get out of the corporate world. I've seen people do it and it's fantastic because I know what it's like to get out and it's just amazing. But I also say to them, well, sometimes it's just out of convenience that they're starting this year because they have the capital, but it doesn't mean the timing is right from a market perspective. So besides learning the asset class, I would strongly recommend people learn market timing because I like to give the very simple example of, I could invest in the best building. I'm in LA here. I could invest in the best building on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills in 2007 and be foreclosed in 2010 because of market timing. And I can invest in the worst building in 2010 with the worst sponsor and have made a boatload of money in 2017 because of market timing. And so the only difference was timing. And so I think it's very important everyone gets their own sense of the market cycles, the timing. I'm concerned about the timing now. So I'm saying this specifically is don't just go in because the timing is convenient for you. You have to also understand the market and then decide if that actually meshes well with you or not. So that's kind of one thing to consider that's very important if you're starting. Number two is if you're trying to figure out what to do, most people start with an asset class to learn that they are familiar with. So apartments is a very common first asset class, and there's a couple of reasons for it. A lot of people, have, most people have lived in an apartment building, they understand the business model, it's actually a fairly simple business model, and they can relate to it. Number two is that if you think about it, apartments, there are just so many in the US, it's easier to find apartment deals. Like if you compare apartments to self-storage, think about it when you drive around your neighborhood, how many self-storage facilities per apartment are there? Like 0.00, whatever. So if you grew up in a mobile home park, that's the asset to start with is what you know best that you can learn most easily to start, but focus on that one asset class first. Okay. That's what I recommend. Learn that asset class really well, dip your toe in it. As it turns out, 80% of what you're going to learn about whatever that asset class is, is actually transferable to most other real estate asset classes. And then you have to learn the other 20% that's different. So that's what I always recommend is I would actually say, try not to get too distracted by looking at self-storage, mobile home park, RV park, because they all sound interesting. A retail strip center's office, they will eventually be interesting, but start with one and focus on one first to learn. Got it. I really like all the value you gave us. And I think all the listeners who are looking to have more of that passive role can take something away, whether it's learning how to get started or predicting market cycles with near certainty. Listeners, thanks so much for spending your time with us and the time's most valuable thing that you have. Jeremy, how can people get a hold of you and who should maybe get in touch? 
Absolutely. And thanks again for having me on. I hope this is helpful for everybody who's still listening here. So the easiest way to reach me, and by the way, do not hesitate to reach out to me. I'm happy to talk if you're brand new, if you want to network as another full-time passive investor, if you're a sponsor with deals, if you have another investor group, you want to just network with my group. My email is the best way to reach me. So it's jroll, J-R-O-L-L at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L Investments with an S. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. So we'll put your email address in the show notes and listeners. While you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free book, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Jeremy. And we'll see you listeners on the next episode.